comment. Hey guys. It's just a pineapple. Hey, what's going on guys? We're here at the swamp. Get ready to beat LSU. Y'all tune in to the Rule Number One podcast on Monday. Yeah. Episode 20. 20 years in a row. Yeah. 20 weeks in a row. That's wild, man. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing this for what? Five months now? A little bit new. Yeah, 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 five yeah. months. About a year with planning, thinking about it and yeah. stuff like that. It's cool, though. But we have a cool guest star tonight for episode 20. My favorite number, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, we're super excited. We have a auctioneer and a commercial pilot um he's kind of a jack of all trades he does all different kinds of stuff has a lot of different interests and so we're super excited to have him on the human swiss army knife (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah this week we have uh scott oglesby on um he owns his own um auctioneer company and he also is a commercial pilot scott where what um do you work for a specific company for well, I have my own company. Uh, as far as the auction company, it's Oglesby and Company Incorporated, and we're a real estate firm and an auction firm. And uh, we we sell all types of assets. I mean, we've done some estate liquidation, some business liquidation, but we really do uh, residential land tra- or re- residential properties, land tracts, commercial mm-hmm. properties, and so forth. That's kind of what we specialize in. What about um, for, you know, you're a commercial pilot as well. Do you work for like a big name company as in like JetBlue or I, I don't I'm uh, actually at this point in time I'm I was uh, with Silver Airways about a year ago mm-hmm. but I kind of uh, pulled back home for a couple of things but I deliver airplanes for a couple of manufacturers to, to their new owners and then I train their new owners in them uh, Mall Aircraft out of Moultrie Georgia Cub Crafters out of uh, Yakima Washington those are the two main ones, and then a couple other companies as well. Yeah, we had a uh, we had Jacob Cooper on uh, several episodes back. Yep. He is a uh, private uh, private jet broker, and okay. so basically what he does is he never even pretty much sees the airplane. So he has this um, this Softline software, yeah, yeah, software where he can see basically anybody that owns a jet. He can pull them up. So, you know, Elon Musk, Walmart, you know, anybody. And so he contacts these people and asks them, you know, hey, are you looking to sell this and that? And once he has a seller, then he goes looking for buyers. So he looks for people that has, you know, this jet or whatever. And so, hey, are you looking to upgrade? Or, hey, One guy has the asset and the other guy has the money. Exactly. Yes. So yeah. he puts them together. So that would be kind of a cool little connection that maybe we can get you all together. I mean, if he's yeah, selling maybe. a plane, they need to move it. Here's a guy. That would work for me. I mean, I, I've worked for all kinds of people around the country, and I've, I've delivered airplanes from uh, well, pretty much east coast to west coast, from Atlantic to Pacific. I've, in the last five or six years, I've probably done 20 trips east, east and west. Uh, I've delivered airplanes to Costa Rica. Uh, you know, just if somebody has something they need moved, they, they just bought it, they need it picked up, or they just sold it, they need it delivered. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah that would be yeah. a great connection to make. Put y'all two together, and uh, y'all both Absolutely. make some money off I'd of it. You know, that. you do a lot of traveling, it seems like. You've seen a lot of different places. You have a you know, pretty cool background and jobs. So I'm really curious to ask, what is your number one rule to live by? You know, I, that kind of changes depending on, well, first of all, when it comes to ethics, morals, and doing the right thing, that that's just, that's it. It's yeah. it's always do the right thing and do what you say you're going to do, but that's kind of cliche. So depending on the context of where I am and what I'm doing, I, I have a couple of a couple of things that I've lived by. Um, one is that no matter what you're doing, have fun. Okay. Now, sometimes we have to work. We have tough days and all, and there's tough days, tough weeks, tough months, and sometimes you just got to push through and soldier through. 
But if you can find something that you absolutely love to do, then you don't ever have to go to work. You just get up every day and go do what you do. So in that regard, I have a saying, and and that is basically uh, we're going to stop doing this when we quit having fun. Okay. Right? And and that's, again, you can't. It's not all Disney World and jelly beans and right. all that, but, but th- there's that. But here's one that really means a lot to me, and, and it's, it's stuck with me for a long time, and that's that if it's not good for everybody, it's not good for anybody. If you're working on a deal, and it's a one-sided deal, and it's going all your way and bad for the other guy, or it's going all the other guy's way and it's bad for you, walk away. Okay. So... Wow, I like that. That that low key like yeah, really hit some, home to me. Yeah, like if it's not good for everybody, it's not good for what? Say that if again. It's not good for everybody. It's not good for anybody. That's I love that. I love I that because that. well, a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. A lot of a uh, lot of people say you know the perfect uh, compromise is whenever both parties walk away unhappy, and so you know you can if. You know, it kind of goes back and forth. You know, one side is like, well, I want this and this and this. And they walk away, you know, just a little unhappy but grateful. Then it's a perfect compromise. But I like, I kind of like that along that lines. It kind of hit home to me a little bit. So let me put it to you in a different context for putting together a real estate deal for a seller. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I want you to, first of all, the auction world is absolutely not a distress situation type marketing method right uh it's it's for marketing quality assets and in a good market where you have a lot of buyers desiring those assets and and you put them out there to the highest and best bidder Mm -hmm. but let's take ourselves into a challenging environment like say the post 2008 economy real estate market or or even what we're probably going to be going into here before long you have a seller Mm -hmm. and they want they want the sun the moon and the stars they expect you the auctioneer to give it to them to provide it for them, okay? They don't want to lay anything out, and they want to control everything to the sense that uh, that you're going to do all the work, and the, the the decision will be up to them at the end, totally and completely. Oh, and by the way, not only are you doing all the work, but you're putting out all the money yeah. to, to get the deal done, okay? To market everything. And to market yeah. it, exactly, to market the property. And you right now as an expert, you know, as a, as a solid professional in the industry, you're looking at it and you're going, what this person wants me to do, what they're asking us to achieve is not achievable under today's terms and conditions, mm-hmm. okay? It's not going to work, okay? It's just not a good deal. So we have a saying about that. And it's really, it's the same thing as the other one, just in a slightly different context. If we're not going to make any money, let's not make any money right now. Yeah, just sit on it. Meaning, if, yeah. well, but, but if it's not going to work, let's just go on our separate ways. Yeah. Okay, that's a different way of saying it. But I've also had sellers, okay, that they've come to me and they say, Scott, we spent a million dollars on this piece of property, okay, mm-hmm. and we're never, ever going to get it back out. And by the way, we've also had the people that spent the million dollars and we sold it for 1.2, 1.5, 1.8, 1. whatever, okay. Mm-hmm. But in a challenging situation, they say, it's not going to make any money. We're not going to make any money in this deal. We need to get out of it. And they will say to me, if we're not going to make any money, let's not make any money right now. As in, let's go ahead and sell it. Scott, whatever it brings, we'll take it. Five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars somewhere short of our of our investment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Let's get it going because then we can take the money that we get out of it, put it back to work somewhere else, and we can focus on what we do well. Okay. I mean, that's 
A lot to take in right there. There's so <laughs> many ways. No, no, long. you're good. I, there's so many ways I could like branch off of that because you know I'm sitting here, my mind's racing. Like how many topics <laughs> I can talk about? Because you know you the way you're looking at life to connect it back to our rule one question. It's like everything you look at is like a deal. Like how mm. you know how am I going to you know affect myself the best the way I can while also helping out the person that I'm you know help going with or doing the deal with. Well, that's it. I yeah. mean, if it, if it doesn't make sense for everybody, it, it doesn't make sense for me. And that's yeah. that's I crazy because you know you're in the auctioneer business, so making deals is how you make a living. Like yeah. how how did you get into that? And like how did you develop this you know thought process? You know, from the time I was a little kid, I my parents took me to auctions right here in Central Florida. You know, Lakeland, Bartow, you know, anywhere within a hundred miles of here. And sometimes we were traveling, and I just liked it. I just enjoyed it. And somewhere around. Well, probably in the late 80s, I was, you know, by that time I was out of college or out of, out of high school in college and doing things on my own. And uh, I was going to more and more auctions. And somewhere in uh, the late 80s, I was doing more and more here. And in 90, 91, probably 92 or 93. Might have been a little bit later than that, but it's probably, uh, no, no, I take that back. It wasn't. It was, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I haven't jumped forward. It was around, 2000, okay. 2001 or two, uh, I was in an auction and one of the auction crew came over to me and they said, Hey, are you going to, and it's people I went to their auction regularly and all yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And they said, Hey, are you going to be here all day? I said, yeah, pretty much. And they said, here, do this. And they handed me something to do it and gave me a, <laughs> a project for the day and all because, and I could still bid and all, but I was yeah. helping them out because they were a little bit short staffed or whatever. Right. And so a couple of weeks later, I got a check in the mail for, I don't know, three or $400. And I called him up, and oh, and so we went at the end of the auction. I helped him pack up, close up. The end of the day, you had a full day at work. Yeah, yeah. yeah, a whole full day. Okay, at work, okay. And at the end of the day, the crew all went to lunch and everything. Went to supper that evening, and everything afterwards. And I went to come on, go eat with us. I nice. ate with him. And so I go on about my business. I go on to work the next day and everything else. A couple weeks later, I get a check for a couple hundred dollars, and I said, uh, hey, "What's?" I called him up. I said, "What's <laughs> this for?" They said, "Well, you're part of the crew that day. You get paid." I said, huh? Oh, snap. Wait a minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> so so I, I, I started joking about it. I said, that's just seed money because whatever they pay me for the day, I still wind up buying other stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that. But in any event, I got some auction dust in my blood, and I couldn't get it out. Okay. Oh, I, so, yes. I completely relate to that. You know, uh, Scott and I have known each other for a while now, and, uh, you know, I've I met you after, you know, you've already started the, uh, the whole auctioneer company. Um, and actually – here recently, we uh, I just moved into this house where we record from, and uh, Scott calls me up, and he's like, hey, uh, you know, I, I need some people to run an auction. Would you mind coming to help out? I was like, yeah, 100%. So, you know, me me going up to the auction, you know, I'm helping, you know, call out bids and get everything organized and everything. And, you know, I'm looking around these auctions, this real estate auction, and, you know, it's, it's um, this man, and he has a lot of, you know, Southern lifestyle stuff, so he's got, you know, uh, dolphin paintings and deer paintings and, you know, rugs and chairs, yeah, and, you know, and just, fishing tackle. Yeah. Just beautiful stuff. A uh, guns, vintage and, stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, I go in there and I'm looking around, I'm looking around and, uh, Scott said, he was like, Hey, we're going to pay you for the day. Um, you know, you help it out. And I'm like, wait a second. So I could take this money and go buy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I start bidding, I start bidding and this and that. And all of a sudden I spent, Way more than I actually made yeah, on the day. Yeah. <laughs> we, we usually do. I mean, it's kind of like the old company store deal back yeah. in the 
early 1900s or whatever you know you're there yeah but you can't get out for what you got in. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's fun yeah i bet uh i bet you know you seeing all these antique things um you know you can probably flip and sell a lot of that stuff have you have you ever seen a lot of um have you ever bought things just knowing that you can make money off of them yes and no um I mean, first of all, I go go to a lot of other people's auctions, too. I, right. ju- I just enjoy it. I still enjoy it. When we were traveling, I mean, I used to travel. We used to travel in a motor coach, and we were selling for companies like Walmart, Albertsons, International Paper, and, and we'd be on a motor coach for two or three weeks at a time with two or three auctions a day, real estate only. But if we had a day off and we're going down the road and we see a, a you know auction sign off to the right, we'd hit the brakes and stop and go to somebody else's auction somewhere else in the country. But back to the flipping deal. I kind of have a theory on that. Mm. My job is to market and advertise this auction as well as possible to generate as much revenue as possible for those assets for that seller, okay? Right. So my goal is to get end users, you know, retail buyers there, and and those people, if if I've done my job well and if the economy and the market and the assets we're selling that day will all carry it, then basically – they're going to go for prices that you can't afford to buy them and resell them. Right. You can't that's, flip them at that point. That's my preference. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't opportunities there, and occasionally something will slide by and, you know, everybody misses the boat, somebody get it, and then turn around and sell it for more. But nobody's making a living doing that. My job is to get the crowd there right. and, and to have – you know, good assets and provide a good service for both the sellers and the buyers. Because at the end of the day, do you – if you don't mind me asking, um, how the auctioneer, do they pay you a commission off of what is totally sold, or do you have a set price? No. Uh, first of all, the sellers typically prepay the cost of the advertising, okay, and that's the direct cost of the media to market the sale, and I give them an estimate of what that's going to be, mm-hmm. and then a budget of what that's going to be, and we work from that. <clears throat> all of our labor and time and everything in advance of the auction is on us, okay? That's on our side of it. And so we charge a percentage to the seller for the item it's sold, and we charge a 10% buyer's premium. So if, a, if an item sells for $100, then the, sell, the buyer's going to pay $110 for that item, plus right. sales tax, of course. Well, of that $100, though, of the bid amount, okay, a certain percentage will come to us, and a certain percentage will go to the seller. And if we're selling... Cadillacs and Rolls Royces and firearms and airplanes, you know, big dollar items, right. then there's a lesser commission to the seller. Mm-hmm. Okay. If we're selling pots and pans and stuff, you know, just small value, you know, small items, lots of little items of, of, of minimal value, then our percentage is higher because we're putting a lot more into it handling wise. Right. And then, of course, on real estate, there's no commission to the seller on real estate. If the bid's a million dollars on a piece of property, that's what you get. Man, sounds like real estate's the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like it. <laughs> you know, you've been doing these auctions for so dang long, and you've seen, I'm sure, tons of different vehicles. What's what's one that sticks out? Like, like you know, you can't forget. Uh, let's see. In uh, 2009, I sold a 32 Ford Roadster. It's a 1932 Ford yeah, yeah. Monterey. Yeah, yeah. And it had a uh, a 327 Chevy small block up front. But it was, you know, a lot of these street rods are done so big and so gaudy and people put Corvette motors in them and all. 
This one was done as if it were done in the in the fifties or fifties uh, or sixties. So like a total okay. restoration. A restoration, but with a, a Ford car with a Chevrolet motor, a small okay. block motor okay. in it, mm-hmm. which is the most common upgrade yeah. on those. So that that one was really cool, and I just couldn't afford to buy it at the time. I mean, I I really liked it. It's kind of my kind of thing, but I couldn't afford it. Um, and then a sale that I put together in two thousand and nine. Also, it was, no, it was maybe a year or two later than that, was a 1929 Ford tri-motor. Okay. And we actually sold it through Barrett-Jackson at their oh, Scottsdale, yeah, yeah, Arizona yeah. sale, which is like going on this week, next week, something like that, uh, coming up here pretty quick. But, uh, yeah, the 1929 Ford tri-motor was a, a way cool sale. And actually, I think that was that was an 09, I believe, because I think we sold it, if I'm not mistaken, on its 80th birthday. Like the week it came oh, out wow. of the factory on the data plate yeah, that's was that cool. same week. Sounds like yeah. you have like a real like, you know, passion or love for like the twenties and thirties cars and vehicles. Yeah, I'm kind of a sucker for that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll definitely say like I I met Scott a while back and you know, he we've hung out a couple different times and got to know each other, but he uh you know, when I first met him, he kind of, he had this love for like old stuff. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And the more and more, you know, I got to know him and everything. It's like, man, that stuff is really cool. And so, you know, I, I, I now I've got Coca-Cola signs yeah, and I've got old lamps and vintage yeah. paintings yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's cool. Like if you ever have an opportunity to go and talk with some of these people that are yes. really like that know about you know, antiques or knowing about antique cars or furniture and stuff like that. Just like pick their brains about it. Because, the stories they have. Yeah, because, you know, if if you walk, if somebody walks in, like I, I get it a lot of times with some of the pictures or uh, paintings I get and people are like, wow, I really like that. And I can tell them about that picture, where that picture was taken or where that painting was or the story about that painting. And I really like that because, you know, it's conversation starters. And whenever it catches somebody's eye, then it's like, man, you almost appreciate it as much as I do. And it's just like, it's kind of like a sense of pride thing where you can grab somebody's eye and at the same time, you know, tell a story about it. Have you, you know, you do merchandise, like you said, pots and pans. Have you ever found like a cool, like piece of memorabilia and like these houses or something doing all this? You know, a couple of things. Uh, one of these goes to the do the right thing type, okay. thing. not the do the right thing, but the um, rules you live by and all. So one of the favorite things that I've sold was a, and I wish I don't have the information with me. I wish I could recall it. But somewhere around 10 years ago, we were selling at a farm down in Fort Meade. Okay. Oh, yeah, my hometown. I say a farm. Yeah, I say a farm. It was kind of a little 15 acre horses and all that. Yeah, it yeah, wasn't yeah. a true production farm, but it was these people's little yeah. place. And there's a brass bell there. And this bell weighed about 500 pounds. I mean, just think Liberty <laughs> Bell, except not quite that big. Big, okay. But around the top of it, much like the Liberty Bell and all these bells built, you know, cast in the 16, 1700s and all, it had all the information around the top of the bell and the bottom right. of the bell and everything of who cast it, date. There's all kinds of information on it. And so I started, um, I started, actually, I got another story too on a gun, similar. <laughs> but. There's enough information to really advertise it. And with electronic, with digital media now, you don't have to have just in the headline. You just have to have the information somewhere in the, the content yeah. of the description. Well, this 
Bell, first of all, I'd love to own it. Man, I was willing to pay for it. I was going to pay five, six, seven hundred dollars for that. Bell. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to you pay big money it. for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in any event, the calls started ringing. The phone started ringing off the hook. Ah, right? okay. When I started advertising it, and we advertised typically about four to six weeks before the sale, and I don't even remember the name of it, but this bell was cast like up in Massachusetts somewhere wow. in the colonies. Like in the late 1600s, early like 1690s, 1700. So in Revolutionary War times, you know, or actually wow. no, pre-Revolutionary War times, but in America, mm-hmm. you know, it That's was cool. it was it was a it was clunk. in a church somewhere. It, it had to be. Well, yeah, probably. I don't know. I can't remember. But the buyers of it paid five or six thousand dollars or so for Holy it, you know, yeah. and just blew my mind. Hmm. But the buyers were family members of that was their ancestor who had that foundry who used to cast these bells and and i mean it was a it was either in a courthouse or a church or something like that but that's one of the coolest things ever um but the description is what made them be able to find it and they were on the hunt you know they'd been looking for years to find bells and other things cast by their yeah, family, they're, they're family, family members, their mm-hmm. ancestors, and so they were collecting as much as they could, and and they bought it on the internet. I mean, they or maybe it's phone. I probably didn't have internet bidding then, but it's probably a phone bidder because I remember I talked to them several times. Gave them, uh, they said, "Well, can you look at this? What do you see here? What do you see there?" And I mean, these people were in tears. It was so cool, and they awesome. and, and it was cool. like one of the best they had ever, one of the best specimens of their family's products that they had ever had. What were you going to do with the bell? Oh, I was going to put it on a post and ring the car <laughs> out of it. I mean, where can you go? I mean, Walmart. Walmart's all out of them. You can't yeah. go to Walmart and get anything like that anymore. It's it's just. But yeah, it it most certainly would have been. And when I say a post, it would have had to have been a whale of a post. It might have had to be two posts <laughs> put between them. But it was way cool. That is a cool. That's well, a cool story. Too. Yeah. What's What's so cool about it is that you can take a piece of history and then you know you market it on the internet, not necessarily knowing exactly what it was. And you could sell it for five, six grand to like somebody who rightfully should have it. Oh, like yeah, we've been looking for it their whole life. That's the key part. Yeah. It it went home. Yes. Bell yes. went home. Exactly. Yes. For top price too. I mean, so yeah. everybody's happy. You know, they yeah. they get a piece of their heritage and at the same time, you know, the seller makes a good deal on good it. Chunk so. of change. Yeah, yeah right. I, I don't think the sellers had a clue that it was gonna bring that. Oh, and, no. and so here but here's another thing too, you ask about we did a sale two or three years ago, three or four years ago, and it was kind of an unusual family situation. It wasn't the greatest thing in the world, but basically all the heirs or all the family members had passed away. And uh, so the money was just going into a, uh, the the proceeds from the sale were going into a uh, into a trust or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we're going through the stuff. We've been going through this house, and we went through several houses that they own and all, and pieces of property. But we're going through this house literally the morning of the sale trying to go through a few more things that we just, you know, like cleaning out a desk and yeah, all that. Yeah. Right. We just really had been like one of the last things we got to. We found like three or $4,000 in there that morning. What, like cash? Just cash. Yeah. yeah like in a desk drawer? Yeah. Oh, and gold coins. Gold oh, coins. man. Oh, I bet so, those brought top dollar too. Oh, well, they too. did. So, so the attorney was there. The attorney representing the estate was there. So we said, here's the cash, Yeah. you know. And what do you, what do you want to do with the coins? He said, sell them. And uh, which is perfect because I had, we already had a couple of things that were kind of gold, silver oriented. And so those types of buyers are there and those coins brought 
a good chunk of change. Did they have the buffalo on them? No, we didn't. I think we had walking liberties. Okay, was what we had. Okay. But, but they were they were U.S. They're American gold pieces. So that's pretty cool. So let me ask you this: You know, you've talked about how the crash of the economy and everything. How does that affect the auctioneer? You know, business. Auctions are designed to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to bring the highest and best dollar under this set of terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about a bad economy. I mean. Auctions make the newspapers when the economy's in the tank, okay, post-Civil War, all right? The South is destroyed, mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of uh, northern uh, military officers were conducting auctions of just property and whatever was around and all, just trying to move it. Well, nobody had any money, and there's a ton of stuff to sell, so nothing brought much money, okay? okay? So uh, so the, the rumor was, or the newspaper is, is the auction didn't bring this much money, everything sold cheap. Well, it sold cheap, but it sold. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump forward to the Great Depression, you know, 1929, 1930, and people are jumping out of buildings and everything else, and the world's coming to an end, and you're having auctions. And whether it's a farm auction or a commercial real estate auction on uh, Manhattan, Manhattan, New York, or, or whatever, you only have so many people with any cash. Yeah. Right? But you have a ton of assets and a, and, and a bunch of banks that have failed and a bunch of businesses that have failed. So you've got a ton of assets to sell and only a few people with any money. So the values are low. All okay. right. Now, and there's the SNL deal, the, uh, the savings and loan bust back in the 80s. Same thing. You know, values were low. But what nobody talks about is all the other times. Well, in 2004, 5, and 6, you know, just here, what, 15, 18 years ago? Yeah. Uh, Money is cheap and easy, and that's a problem. That's its own story we'll save for another day. <laughs> but but loans are easy, but banks are making loans due to some yeah. poor... Judgment? Poor government. Okay. Poor government policies. We'll leave that one alone. We don't need okay. to go too far into that. But we can later, but not now. But anyway, so that, so anybody anybody wants to borrow money can borrow money, all right? And everybody's deciding to buy real estate. So real estate values are just going through the roof. So in this particular case... You know, people are calling me up hand over fist, and this and this road right on through. It really lasted for us to, through two thousand and we knew the deal was over in two thousand and five. The end of two thousand and five, nobody else really figured it out. And I say we, the people that I'm close to in the auction industry, working around the country, because I've conducted auctions in forty four states since two thousand and four. Okay, but. We knew by by watching the the parameters that we watch and the barometers that we watch that the race is over at the end of 2005. Nobody else really figured it out completely until 2008. We kept moving properties until 2010 before it really hit a wall for us. But properties that properties were bringing two, three, four times the money. I was selling Grove, burned out Grove, Canker Grove down in Highlands County. That shouldn't have brought five or six grand. I was, an I was acre about to ask at the that. time, bringing twenty five, thirty grand. It wasn't lake front. It wasn't. It's just twenty seven front. It might have been two miles down a dirt road, you know, off twenty seven, back in the back on an island, meaning swamp all around it, but a little hill. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And what yeah. it looks like, and it might have been a thirty, fifty, eighty acre, you know, patch of grove. That's bringing twenty, twenty five thousand, twenty eight thousand dollars an acre, not for any good reason. Okay, mm-hmm. so what's happened now is that a few years later, and, and by the way, a lot of that money was coming up out of South Florida. Mm-hmm. People are taking Miami values and applying them to Central Florida dirt, and it was selling for 
half the price that they would have paid in Miami, so they thought they had a deal. Right. But selling for three times, five times the price it would have brought here. And that's what stinks with, yes. you know, agriculture is because a lot of times whenever these real estate, well, <laughs> I say it stinks. Um, for the state of Florida, like I've, we've said on a couple of episodes, like I've said, the state of Florida is for sale right now. And, you know, the citrus industry is tanking. I mean, it's... It's n- in trouble. It, it hurts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's very bad. I mean, for instance, like Florida Natural, it's 75% Brazilian oranges, and it's Florida's natural orange juice. And so it's like, right. it stinks as the agriculture industry, but whenever the real estate is high, you know, it's tough for these farmers to be like, well, you know, am I going to turn down, you know... $1.5 million on a grove that's costing me $200,000 a yeah. year and I'm not making a profit on it. And so it stinks because the old time agriculture farmers are getting out of it. They're selling, they're making money. And it's like, okay, maybe I can leave this chunk of change to my kids, but it stinks because Florida's not the agriculture state it once was. It's becoming more of a settler state. People are moving down here left and right because of, you know, how free it is kind of compared to the rest of the country. And when like you said, real estate's at sky high cost right now. It does bring the moral decision to farmers and the grove owners. Well, I can keep losing money with that grove that's half dead, or I could sell out here while real estate prices are as high as they've ever been and cash out and walk away from it. Well, and I tell you, the uh, you know I grew up in South Lake on Highland City area, all right, and there was a couple of families in particular that owned all the grove around there. Well, I remember twenty five, thirty years ago as the development was creeping into that area and you know they were developing some of their older groves and they were reinvesting that money and buying groves or resetting or setting new groves down in the bell area mm-hmm. so they're getting south of the freeze line well at that point in time canker was a minimal issue and greening was not even on the horizon yet yeah, not even thought. so i haven't really talked to any of them lately to see what where they are now i mean i see them all the time i just really haven't asked asked but None of the grove that I that was around me when I grew up is there anymore. It's a hundred percent houses, uh, and and it's really sad. I mean, it it hurts. I, I can remember up and down Clubhouse Road and Bartow Highway. There are goats on the road, you know, all the time, once or twice a year, and uh, you know, just picking. And it, it's just the way it was. It was all around us. Um, I have friends down in West Palm area that have completely gotten out of farming and they've sold their land, some of it for two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars an acre, and they farmed Jeez. it up to the very end. I mean, they farmed it five, ten years after what made sense from a land value standpoint. Right. But they just but they were doing fine farming and they just let that value keep on going. Keep on. Some of them are totally out of farming now. Some of them are totally retired. Others are still farming but they're farming with a with a safety net of their own investment accounts and so forth. Mm. And they're, they farm because they love it. They farm still because they make money, not in that area. But they farm without some of the worries that their parents and grandparents had. Right. And that's, that's key. Um, you know, I will say, you know, we've mentioned that you're a, um, you know, we've talked about your auctioneer. We've talked about how you're a pilot. Did you ever have the opportunity to, like, crop dust any groves or pastures or anything? And for those of y'all that don't know what crop dusting is, it's... You're talking about the literal crop dusting, not not that... that uh, <laughs> yeah. Not that slang term. <laughs> yeah. The slang term, you know, you're not yeah. passing gas as you walk by. An actual crop duster is whenever um, 
there are these planes that will fly over, or sometimes they're helicopters too, yep. um, but they will fly over groves or pastures and they will chemically spray some of these areas and they'll make several passes. And so with that information. Yeah, no, no, I never have done any of that. I have a couple of friends that have. I've known a few people over the years that have. I really admire them. Um, going, you know, from your private to commercial, where, like, what enticed you to do that? And can remember, you explain a little r- difference r- remember between that, two? Remember yeah. that part where I said I wasn't having fun anymore or, or you know, yeah, stop yeah. it when you quit having fun? Uh, and that's not entirely true. First of all, um, yeah, I drink a little beer. Okay. drink a little whiskey. <laughs> I don't have any use for drugs. Just never appealed to me because the things that I want to do, they're not going to help me to get there. Okay. okay? And they're not going to help me to check those boxes. Check the boxes is a saying of mine. You need, you need to check some boxes. So... I've never been into drugs. Okay. But airplanes <laughs> are like a drug to me. All right. Okay. And I started flying, like I said, back in the 80s. And around 2098 or 99, I pretty much got out. There's some changes in business and life and all that, family changes and all. So um, I pretty much, and, and, I, and actually big part of it was that I was going into a new business. I've, I've been working for my family, for my, for my dad and so forth. And I decided to strike out, and we were in manufacturing, nothing to do with the auction business. We were in heavy industrial manufacturing and in agricultural equipment manufacturing, and I was on the ag side. And it was getting, we built packing house machinery for fruit and vegetable growers. Okay. So that business was getting harder and harder to be competitive in, and my dad didn't want to invest any money into our shop to upgrade and improve our equipment and our manufacturing capacity, yeah. capabilities. So I left, and I went out and started my own business, and... Uh, and it was a CNC, a, com- a computer numerically controlled CNC laser shop. Okay. And we cut parts out of sheet metal. Didn't matter what they were. If they could be cut out of sheet metal or plate, uh, thin plate, then for you to build your widget, whether it's airplane parts, race car parts, industrial parts, mm-hmm. it didn't matter. Okay. Anything that you wanted, I could cut it out uh, to your specifications. And there was none of that equipment around. So I, I went off in that direction. Okay. What was your original question? I'm back. Uh, I was asking, like, how uh, oh, how, how you got from, you know, moving from a, okay. you know, the... From uh, on, on, yeah. on the aviation yeah. side of it. Okay. Yeah. So, basically, I'd been flying for fun and for business, meaning going to see customers and all for years, and all of a sudden that cut out because I had to do a major change in our business model and everything else, and I couldn't afford an airplane. Okay. okay. So, then let's jump forward to 2012. I'm up at my buddy's farm in middle Georgia, and he has a 2,400-foot airstrip and a 10,000-square-foot hangar there. And for years, he had been having all the friends in for a fly-in, usually one in the spring, one in the fall. And he kept telling me, you need to come up to this. You need to come up to this. And, again, I when I quit, you know, 12 years before, I quit cold turkey. All right? okay. And I didn't miss it. I said I didn't miss it. I enjoyed my flying buddies, but I just... What are new adventures? I, no, mm-hmm. no. I really just reset my focus on things I had to do okay. and things I could afford to do. Okay. Okay. So we're up at the farm, and my buddy says to me, and, and Bill's 10 years older than me, and he says, hey, go go fly my L2. Go fly my Cub. And it's like noon on a Saturday, and I hadn't been current in years, meaning I had the medical exams and the check rides and all that. And I'm going to spare some of the details because that's kind of like taking the fifth type deal. Mm-hmm. But basically, I, I wound <laughs> up in an airplane, 
And 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 back in the in the nineties, I was flying competition aerobatics. I was flying pit specials and Man, extras cool. and sucoys and all. And so I go up in this cub, and in about five minutes, I'm spinning it, I'm stalling it, then I'm spinning it, you know, and I'm yeah. doing rolls on a downline and all. And I'm, I'm again, you're getting the Cliff Notes version. Yeah. But my saying is, is that you know, when I quit, I quit. Okay. But, you know, you heard about being on the wagon, like somebody's drinking yeah, or not yeah, drinking fall off the wagon. on the wagon. Yeah. Well, when I fell off the wagon, I hit with a thump. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that was 11 years ago. So after that, at that point, uh, it didn't take me. So I, one of my buddies was there, another buddy from up in Georgia, and he had this really nice cub. And I took Nathan for a ride in that airplane a few years ago. It's a PA-12, a supercruiser, kind of a derivative of a cub. And I say it's really nice. It it was perfect for me at the time because I could afford it, and I could my kids could fly it. And if you're a pilot and you're one of my buddies, I said go fly the airplane. Okay. Meaning it's it's one that any of my friends that fly tail draggers can go fly, and I don't worry about the airplane and I don't worry about my friend. Okay. Meaning mm-hmm. you're, everybody's going to be okay. You know, it's not any not anything tricky, but but it's versatile. So in any event. With that, I started adding ratings. I was a private pilot at that point in time with an instrument rating. Well, then I added commercial. Then I added multi-engine land. Then I added single-engine C, and then I added multi-engine uh, C. You checking C. off the boxes. I'm checking the boxes. Yeah. Exactly. I'm checking the boxes. Okay. And uh, so at this point, I need to go ahead and take my ATP check ride, which is airline transport pilot. That's pretty much the highest rating you can get. I need to go do that and get that finished up and all. But, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's one of those things that, that I I was able, after all those years of flying at my own expense, I was able to start flying for other people. And and part of that was was that uh, an airplane, so what got me moving these airplanes around the country was there was an airplane that had been at Lakeland for about 10 years, and a few guys flew it every now and then, but the owner lived up in Tennessee, and uh, we're between Tennessee and Washington, D.C., and he decided he wanted his airplane back, and it hadn't been flown in five or six years. And so he called down to the guys down here. They got the airplane all in shape and everything to, to uh, you know, basically went through an annual inspection, made it, you know, confirmed that it was everything was airworthy, the engine ran good and all. And they asked me, said, hey, you want to deliver this thing to Chattanooga? Absolutely. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that, <laughs> you know. So uh, in any event, I did. And then a few weeks later, somebody else called, hey, I hear you can do this. Can you do that? And, yes, I can. Yeah. There you go. And, uh you ever heard the saying, you know, if somebody asks you to do something you don't know how to do, accept the, accept the task, accept the job. I say fake then, it till you make it. Then, well, that's kind of it. Um, and that'll get you killed if you're not careful. But the point <laughs> is, is that's kind of it, is that, um, you know, accept the task, accept the job, and then learn how to do it. Okay. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't fly anything I'm not rated for, but I am fortunate to be able to get into some airplanes that I haven't flown before. And I used to even do that in the aerobatic days where people would put me in their single-seat airplane, no way to check me out in it, you know. But I had earned their respect by flying other stuff. And so, you know, you'd tell me, so well, go get in. So I'd strap into your airplane, and you'd come over and stand beside me for two or three minutes and say, okay, well, here's this speed, and here's this speed, and pay attention to this, and don't worry about that. Hey, man, and then they'd pat me on the shoulder, and they'd say, hey, man, have a good time. And they'd walk away. And I'm sitting in their quarter million dollar airplane. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) So now I get to do it on a professional basis, properly insured. 
All you, you know. all the safe check marks. Yeah. All the yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let uh, me ask you. Let me ask you this. So you know, you see all of. I feel like if you ask somebody and be like, you know, first thing that you think of, like when it comes to a pilot, they think of you know, like the naval aviators, and that'll fly down on the uh, you know the carries and stuff. The Tom Cruise stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 You Top know, gun. Top, Top Gun. gun you yeah. know, typical stuff. Um, what's the difference? Let's just say in terms of skill level. Guys flying down and landing on the aircrafts, catching other cables, you know, is that something that you could do? Or is that like, like, I'm curious yeah. the difficulty level between the two, like a commercial and like a, you know, Navy I, combat guy. I, I, I couldn't even hold a candle to that. I yeah. mean, you know, first of all, they're flying a completely different class of aircraft and very few of them because of the way they came into aviation could jump into the stuff that I'm flying today. Hmm. They right would now, be very like, easily. However... Yeah. I could teach them to fly my airplanes in two or three days. Mm-hmm. It'd take me a year to learn to fly theirs. Okay. So, so the point is, is that their level of performance, their level of commitment, um, you know, is is just absolutely incredible. And and the thing is, is I spent this past Saturday, you know, two days ago, flying with with the guy that's actually my medical doctor for my all my FAA stuff and everything. But he and I went flying the float plane mm-hmm. that it belongs to a buddy of mine now, but um, used to belong to me. But we went flying that twin-engine float plane uh, for the day Saturday up around uh, Kissimmee, Hatchnaha, came down to Tiger Lake, and then uh, Lake Toho and all up in that area. But we were just, you know, I call it splash and dash. You land here, you take off, you fly over, land in another one yeah, yeah. times. But he was a carrier pilot. As a matter of fact, he'd be a good guy for you for y'all to talk to sometime. But uh, he he was a uh, Navy carrier pilot. He had the distinction of being, I'm not sure if it was the first or the only, active duty medical doctor who was also on active flight status. So Flying a lot doctor. Of, a lot of pilots have become doctors, you know, while in the service or after the service yeah. or whatever. He was actually a medical doctor in the in the Navy who was also an active medical officer. That's a smart cookie. So, yeah. That is a smart man. I, I really yeah. hope that we can somehow figure that out and talk to him because I'm sure he's got some cool stories to tell. Yeah. Um, you know, you've talked about, you know, your journey with being a pilot. How would What advice would you give to someone that wants to get into the industry? You know, um, whether it start at 18 or start at, you know, 30. You know, what advice would you give to that person? You know, uh Nothing to do with aviation, just the advice that I that I would give to anybody wanting to do something that is basically requires some significant effort, involvement, and time commitment, and that's grab it and growl, meaning just get it, it and go. Yeah, get it and go. Uh, it's going to take a lot of studying, and for some people that comes easy, and for some people it doesn't. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> it's going to take a lot of time commitment. And it's going to take a lot of money commitment. Uh, you know, be be prepared to starve. Too many people these days aren't prepared to go hungry until they're 30 or 35 or 40. And when I say go hungry, I'm not talking about homeless. I'm yeah. just talking about... Uh, you don't need to go get a ribeye. Exactly, exactly. And and we can... Yeah, I mean, I, I could go on, on that for years. And, and, you know, I will tell you this. that There's a lot of things I can tell you and a lot of advice that I can give you. Most of the advice that I would give you 
is not because I made these decisions properly early on myself and <laughs> did it all right and yeah. checked every box as I could. It's mostly because I'm looking back over my shoulder going, oh, that was really stupid. I do if that you, now and I'm 20, 20, yeah, about to be 24. Yeah. If, if I had listened to the people that tried to give me advice, if I had listened more to the people when I was younger that tried to give me good, solid advice and tell me to be patient and take time and dig in, then I'd be far better off. Yeah, and I, I'll definitely uh, say I can attest to that. I mean, this, my whole entire life, I feel like, has been a kind of trial and error kind of person. I've yeah. always, I've always, Same. Been, welcome to life. Same. <laughs> I've always been the kind of person where you know I could have somebody preaching in my ear nonstop, 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 and I and there it is. I'm still gonna go do it, and I'm gonna you know make the mistake, and then all of a sudden it like it comes back and be like, okay. Now I know, and I can make an you know adjustment for that. And I feel like a lot of people um, nowadays, it just it gets to the point where you know they're preaching, but sometimes you just need to like, all right, go for it. You know, if yeah. you want to make your mistakes, go make your mistakes, and just hope they learn from them. And I feel like that's those been a big time life lessons for me. Is once I made those mistakes, I grew into the person that you know I wanted to be more than you know the road that I was going down. I was I was glad I didn't end up down that road, but. I like I like the topics you've mentioned tonight. Like, just go for it, go and growl. Yeah. I'm gonna well, write down the mirror when I get home tonight. Well, let me let me give you an example of two people. I'm okay. one of them. Okay. And another one is a really good friend of mine. All right, and we're, we're both pilots. All right. And he's a year or two younger than me. We're the same age, effectively. Well, he started flying when he was 18, 20, 21 years old. I think he went to college. I think he was a college graduate. And he became a flight instructor, which is how most pilots build their time early on. Okay. Okay. And then uh, he met his wife, settled down, got married, started having kids. And as he progressed up through the ranks in aviation, he got a real job flying airplanes. He didn't go out and buy a Cub or something like that. He didn't go out and buy pits that he could barely afford or couldn't afford at all. Speaking about myself in that particular <laughs> context. Okay. Had it doesn't mean I could afford it. Okay. Okay. And he spent the next 20 or 25 years um, building a real estate portfolio in the upper Gulf Coast. I'll say that. I won't say ah, if it's okay. Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. But anyway, he invested significantly in real estate. And he drove a minivan. And he had two kids. And he worked his way on up to a job at Delta to where he's knocking down into the mid-six figures of salary, him. doing incredibly well. Well, see, he and I just met about 10 years ago. And after 20, at that point, after 20 years of flying for the airlines and so forth and flying for a living, his son was about 10, I guess, at the time. And he says, you know, he said, I need to get a little airplane for my son to fly or for, for me and my son to yeah. fly. And I want something for fun. When I started doing this 20-odd years ago, I wanted, to, I wanted to fly because I wanted to fly. The point is, is... He has the same wife and kids that he started with. He has a he had a significant real estate portfolio that he sold in that one community that he Yeah. You know, he after he had about eight or ten properties and they were all being managed either on the phone or by somebody else or whatever, rental properties, let's say they're beachfront or beach community income properties. Once he had 12, 10, 12, 15, he started his own management company. 
okay, because he had to manage them all, so he needed right. to hire somebody to manage them yeah. all. So his phone wasn't ringing off the hook all the time or when <laughs> he wasn't available. So all that was, you know, at this point, 30 years ago now. Well, since he bought his first toy airplane about 10 years ago, he probably owns seven or eight now. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Making up for lost time. Making, exactly, yeah. making up for lost time. And by the way, he sold a bunch. He's bought and sold a bunch, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. My seaplane, he just bought from me a little while back, like two or three months ago. But he sold in mid-2022, he sold that portfolio of real estate properties, investment properties, vacation properties down on the Gulf Coast. Cashed out. Over a hundred properties he had acquired in twenty years. Man. All right. The point is That's a uh, seven as, figures as, for as, yeah. as, soon, as <laughs> yeah. soon as as soon as he had a, a, a paying job, he paid attention to his family. He invested his money. He still had a good time. They still went on lots of vacations and stuff, but he didn't go out and buy toys. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. He didn't go out and waste his money on junk, you know, like I did, like a lot of other people did, and so forth. And and uh, so he put himself in a very comfortable position early on. And again, he has the same set of the same wife and kids that he started with. And I say that jokingly because actually it's not jokingly. I say that a little flippantly or whatever because that's kind of rare in the aviation world and especially the airline world. It's hard on a family. And he focused and he did it right. And uh, my hat is off to him for that. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> That's, I, I, it's so refreshing to see, you know, that, you know, you're an older gentleman and you've done pretty... I'm 73, su- dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've done very successful, but you're still learning from others. You know, you haven't you closed it out. Like, you know, some people who were, if they were to get to your status and have the things that you have, they would, you know, think, I did this all myself, closing out. You're still learning from people, I, just like what me and I, me do every episode. Here. I appreciate hearing you say that. Here's the kicker. I'm learning more now from others than I ever have in my life because I am finally at the, at the and, and, I, and by the way, I joked a minute ago, I'm 73. I'm not 73, just for everybody <laughs> out there. <clears throat> Mid-50s. But anyway. You look great I'm, for 73. Yeah. <laughs> I am learning more now from others than I ever have in my life for one reason and one reason only. I've chosen to. Okay. You know, I've I've started paying attention more so probably in the last ten years or so, but every day that goes by I try to pay more attention to the things that matter and the people that matter. Yeah. You know. You know, you yeah. you say that and uh the the people that matter, I'm I'm very curious, you know, we've asked this episode, or this question every episode. If you could have three people out to dinner, dead or alive, where would you go, and who would the people be? Uh, let's see. Okay. So the first one that comes to mind would be my grandfather, my dad's dad. Okay. He, uh, he founded our machine shop in 1946, uh, and it was a side hustle because he was employed by a com- company that built packing house machinery, all right, Food Machinery Corporation. But World War II came along, and they were contracted to be a government you know, manufacturer of right. government amphibious vehicles, uh, military amphibious vehicles. So he and a few other people, three other guys, were allowed to, well, only one of them was, he and one other were from food machinery. But they were able to build a company to service food machinery's customers during the war because mm-hmm. food machinery couldn't. 
Yeah. Right? And after the war, he decided to continue to do that. But he died. I was seven years old when he passed away. And he was, I remember being at the first Sun and Fun fly-in ever, the big one at Lakeland, uh, which would have been around 1972 or so, 72, 73. And I remember holding his hand. My dad was out hopping rides, giving people rides in his airplane for, for money, for donation or whatever. And I remember holding my, my granddaddy's hand and saying, Grandpa, is that a remote-controlled airplane up there? He says, no, son, that's a real airplane with a real man in it. But he was the one when my sister and I were kids, he paid a, a lot of attention to us. Whenever we were around, boy, he was busy with us and uh, tape, cassette tape recorders and all that. So, and recording our voices and his voice and all. So I still have all that. That's awesome. Um, beyond that, my great uncle on my mother's side was uh, the first influence in aviation. He was shot down in 1943 in World War II. And I have the car that he learned to drive in. It's a 1930 Model A. Um, and he's been the family hero. He was shot down. He never came home. They know he got out of his airplane, but never him he never made it home. Oh, so he was a pilot in the He's a pilot, yeah. Wow. In, in, in F6F Hellcats, flying off the Essex, the USS Essex, Essex which was an aircraft carrier in World War II. And, uh, and so, yeah, he, and, and he actually he ran away to Canada. When the war started, mm-hmm. you've heard about people running away to Canada right. to escape the war. He did it differently. Back when, when Great Britain was in the war, back before fighting Germany, back before we ever got involved in 41 and 39, he ran away to Canada and joined the Royal Canadian Air Force and was, was training there and headed to England when we got uh, bombed at Pearl Harbor. Oh, he wanted to get the head start. Yeah. Right. So he, he ran away to Canada to get in, not to, to run away out. from yeah. it. Yeah. Right. So he, he uh, those are two. And then uh, the third one, there's a handful of people, but they'd all be Florida crackers. You probably know a couple of them. <laughs> uh, For those of y'all that don't know what a Florida yeah. cracker is, uh, another slang term that we might need to uh, – <laughs> Address. Yeah, it's yeah. A, basically like an old time Florida cowboy yeah. in a way, and and uh, people with 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 historical Florida roots, right, 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 four, five, six, seven generations didn't move in here last week. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. they've been here for a long time, and and cut and cut a living out of this land mm-hmm. when it was hard. So, but uh, no, those those are the first two. Um, you know, I think the third one would be my mom. Okay. You know, my mom passed away just a couple of years ago, and uh, I think the things that my sister and I have learned about her and what she did for our family that we never really knew mm-hmm. or, you know, just didn't yeah. really need, you know, uh, I think we've gained a whole new respect for our mom and and uh, love for her, and I wish I could put my arms around her one more time. Mm. Yeah, it's really nice. She, we haven't had somebody who has been – you know, family, family, family oriented with their table dinner mm-hmm. question. It's cool to see that, you know, an older guy, probably one of the oldest ones we've had on, his are all family. I don't mean experience. that. Experience. Yeah. Experience. experience. Yeah. I'm not trying to mean that in any disrespectful way. <laughs> I it's got just, it. it's, it's cool to see the different perspective because, you know, we're normally asking that question to 20, 25 year olds and they were like, all oh, the famous people, famous people, famous yeah. people. 
you know, you yeah. you get the professional athletes and you know the comedians and stuff like that. It's very, it is very cool because it shows people that have shown a reflection on your life and yeah. kind of made you into the person you are today. And also on top of that, inspired you into kind of doing what you want to do for your life. Um, you want to take yeah, the next I one? I do because I really feel like this is going to be a good one. You know what? What's the best advice you could give to twenty-three-year-old guys? I've already given it in okay. our conversation so far. Um, have you ever heard the saying that, let's see, I'm, I might get it right, I might get it wrong. <laughs> Tough times make strong men. Yes. Strong men make good times. Good times make soft men. Soft men make tough times. Okay? Everybody hates hearing this, and, and it sounds so cliche or whatever. I don't even know if that's the right way to use that term, but. I was talking about my buddy a minute ago that has done very well. He put he put his priorities in the right order. Yeah. And again, I can speak of this not because I did, but because the more and more I look back, I realize how little I did, how how much I did not do that. But um, drive an old car, and I don't mean an antique. Drive a ten year old car, twenty year old car, or honestly, drive an antique because you can work on them yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but but make your daily driver something twenty or thirty years old. And when you pull up in front of your friends and they kind of laugh and snicker about that old vehicle and so forth, you know, well, you might be driving an old vehicle, but if you take care of it yourself, you know what makes it work and what what doesn't work and what's going to need attention next, all right? And you might spend your Saturday working on it, all right, to to make sure everything's good so that this next week going to work, you're okay. But do you know what you're not going to be doing on Saturday? No. Spending money at the bar. Yeah. Well, you know, well, that there's that. You might do a little of that still. You're not going to be making an $800 car payment. Yeah. For True. this month on that Saturday, you know, for that car, uh, or for for a new car. You know, my point is, is that I have some friends that that are very very comfortable. One guy went to a uh, an Ivy League school. Yeah. And uh, he's a pilot. He has a couple of old airplanes. Nothing fancy. And he drives an older Bronco, a first-generation Bronco that truly would be a fifty or $60,000 vehicle yeah. if, or more if he were to sell it. But he's been driving it for 25 years. Ah, okay. okay. Now, his wife probably has a very nice car. Yes. All right. But he drives this Bronco. He says, I don't need anything more than this. I like it, and I don't have any car payments on it. And about 10, 12 years ago, this is actually five, six years ago when we were having this conversation, he said 10 or 12 years ago, I completely tore it down, rebuilt the whole thing. You know, it took me about six months to do it. I drove one of my farm trucks, you know. <laughs> took him about six months to have it totally torn down and rebuilt, you know. But he made it fresh and new again, and he keeps driving it. Why? Because it's fine. It's good enough. Yeah. Um, so, so back to answer your question in short terms, suffer. Learn to suffer. Bite the bullet just just because you want it. Here's another saying. It just reminded one of my favorite ones that right, you said. It was the, my, one of mine is be comfortable with things that are uncomfortable or be comfortable in the uncomfortable. Yeah. James, same thing. You, you don't know anybody, any explanation yes. as to why. And don't worry about keeping up with them. I have another set of friends and family that are old Florida crackers. They came down here to develop some land at the wrong time, went, <laughs> went broke. Yeah. And then and you had to learn farm. how to farm. Then, you know who they are, yeah. okay? But 
the patriarch of the family, whenever they would come to our auctions or whatever, they didn't spend any money. They'd buy a little bit here and there, but they always came. They always watched. They always visited. They enjoyed it and all of that. They can buy whatever they want. Do you know why? Because they saved. Because they don't. Exactly. Okay. Because they saved. Because they don't buy whatever they want. Okay. I like that. All right. You see what yeah. I'm getting yeah, at Yeah, here? I see what you got. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm following. I mean, I'm and, on the tracks. And, and again, it doesn't mean I've done very well at this. But I have learned from watching some friends and people who I love and respect dearly. You know, you've mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, spending money and and the investments that make. If we gave you $100,000 right now, what would you do with that investment? Or that money, excuse me. You know, that's tough. Um, I know it's kind of a stumper, too. (laughs) Well, so here's the thing. There's philanthropy stuff, giving money to the community and all. I'm not real big on that, but here's why. It's not that I'm not big on that. I'm I'm not capable of doing that on a large scale where a building or a hospital is named after me or my family or my mother Mm -hmm. or whoever. But there's a lot of people that a little bit will go a long way with. And... uh, so I, I think what I would do first is I'd, I'd try and put the money. Okay, so if you're going to invest the money, I try to look for new and emerging technologies that have both consumer and commercial applications. Yes, yeah. One of the biggest ones is XM Radio. Okay. Did real, real, real well with that years ago. Okay. Because it was nice when it was a consumer thing. But then when XM Radio started producing uh, product, and, and then XM and Sirius were competitors, and then they merged. But when they started having uh, uh, ambulance, uh, like think of tornado country and all out west, when when they had weather graphic XM weather in an ambulance or in a fire truck or in a police car, or they had marine stuff, commercial applications for marine or aviation, and then GM bought thirty five percent of XM, you know, and then every every GM vehicle, so that's the consumer yeah, side. Yeah. Every GM vehicle then could have XM radio in it from the factory and all. You know, that's an XM stock from $2 to $30, $25, $30, $40, you know, right. pretty over the next few months. So I'd invest that money, right? But the real answer, the real question is, once you invest it and you're getting a return back off of it, then what do you do with the profits? Well, yeah. you can either keep reinvesting them for selfish reasons, which is not a bad thing because you're building a, a nest egg and all that, um, and then you can use that money at basically when it starts produ- producing a return. Um, I like to get involved in small projects back to the, to the answer to your question. Uh, a kid's ballpark. Okay. You know, or somebody that needs help with something or, you know, there, there's a saying and I, and I don't think it has any biblical context. Nathan might know, but God helps those who help themselves. You know, I don't think there's any scriptural basis for that. I think that there's, go ahead. Yeah, no, I I, I definitely think, well, to the biblical context, he calls, I believe it's uh, 10% of what you make is, he says, like, for instance, like a paycheck. Yeah, should be tied to the church. So, or given back to um, the church. Or there's another context where, um, you know, some of the Pharisees or the high priests that or were in the uh, the temple at the time, they uh, they asked Jesus and said, hey, um, you know, this coin 
or uh, should we pay this corrupt emperor at this time and pay him all of this stuff? And he asked him, you know, whose face is on the coin? And he, they said Caesar's. He goes, well, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give the Lord what is the Lord's. And so basically it just says, you know, give the government what they want, but at the same time, you know, respect the Lord and respect his plan. But too. hang on, I got I to gotta differ with you there and give the government <laughs> what they want. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I know what you're saying. Yeah. You don't want to give them what they want because they'll take it all. Right. But where I'm going with that is, is if, you come up, if you come up on somebody that uh, is willing to suffer, and I, and I had this conversation with, with my daughters, soon to be new, and it was a while back, Kids today need, and kids, by the way, is anybody younger than me. If you're okay. more than three weeks okay. younger than me, that's, you know. But anyway, you need to you need to learn to suffer. Well, it's it's not that I want anybody to be miserable. It's that you need to know what you're made of. You need to know yeah. how tough it can be and so forth. So if there's somebody out there that is giving everything they can and they are, they are using every resource they have available, which means everything they have inside, everything they have outside, their friends, their, their relationships, their contacts. And I don't mean say using them in a greedy way. I mean utilizing some, them. U- the right u- way. Utilizing, yes, utilizing and reciprocating, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and if there's something you can do to make a difference for, that, for those folks, and it might be a mom trying to feed her kids. Mm-hmm. Or it might be a guy trying to get a business going to, that's going to employ people and feed his family and feed other families. You know, that's where I would rather, you know. And then there is just doing nice things for people I care about and love. All right. Yeah. Is that too long of an answer? No, no, no that's, that's great. That's, that's, that's half hour like, answer. No, I'm just sitting there thinking about everything you said. It's just so in return, you would, with the hundred grand, you would invest in, you know, some new tech. Or upcoming tech that could be used commercially and well, well something productive, consumer. something yeah. something yeah. that's going to grow. While also giving back to, you know, somebody. your community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Well, I think, you know, Mr. Scott here is a very very busy guy. Well, we got we got one more question. I didn't this know is, if we wanted to ask it because we already asked him earlier in the show. Remember I don't he think told we us, covered. He told us the Model A. The 20s and 30s version of the Oh, floor. no, no, no. That was just one. You asked what was my favorite thing that I sold. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. What, what was, uh, what was your, what would be your dream vehicle? Yeah, sorry. I know you've seen a, a bunch of them, too. Yeah. <laughs> a, okay, um, with three wheels or four? Many. However many yeah. you want. <laughs> okay. I don't even have to have All wheels. Right. Uh, okay, it can float. Sure. Okay. Um, it's got a motor and can move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to leave boats out of it just because we don't we don't need to go off on that rabbit trail. <laughs> um, no, I airplane wise, I would love to have a 1942-1943 Grumman Goose. Okay. It's okay. a World War II twin engine. Or no, it's really okay. World War II period. Um, but it's it's a uh, it's an amphibious seaplane. Developed in Bethpage, New York, which is on Long Island, and it was actually developed. It was used is developed in the late 30s, and they were used during World War II for you know some sub spotting and and stuff like that, uh, like off the coast. I don't think they ever went overseas much, but it's a big radio engine, honking loud, noisy, <laughs> smoke belching yeah. airplane. And uh, to me, it's the most gorgeous airplane in the world. It's not fast, but it'll land anywhere and haul everything. It's very mechanical. Yeah, very very much so. And I can work on it. Yes. Um, But if we're talking four wheels, 
my favorite vehicle in the whole world is from the 1947 uh, to 1954, early 55 Chevrolet pickup trucks. Okay. And the 54 in particular. Before the square bodies, right? Yes, yes. This is all around. Yeah. And, and so get this. They were called the AD series, the advanced design. Oh, okay. That's what Chevrolet it called was aerodynamic. <laughs> yeah. So here's the funny thing about it. These days, I like them all original. I want mm. the original engines in them. I want the original interior, the original three-on-the-tree column shift. But everybody these days wants to put great big Corvette motors, LS make motors, Chevrolet motors, you know, all the – and make it fast. And these things will go from zero to 60, boom, like that. Now, they're heavy-bodied and all, but but compared to what they would do, they make – you know, they, they hot-rod them. Yeah. These things are scary as they can be on the highway. Like, if, if you've got one that'll run 80 miles an hour on the highway, Start shaking. the engine will push it, but the aerodynamics don't work at all, <laughs> and a semi passes them, and, and you can't put enough good suspension underneath it to make them handle decently. They are yeah. scary. But, yeah. yes, but I love those vehicles. They top out at about 45 or 50 mile an hour. And I don't have anywhere I need to go very fast. Yeah. I like that. Not in that thing, at least. You're <laughs> just right. you're yeah. embracing the ride. Yeah. yeah. But you could tell. Uh, you could tell Scott loves the yes. the old generation and the yeah. old antiques things. And uh, I feel like that. You know, it really makes you you. Um. You know, we we discussed about your auctioneering thing. It it literally applies to everything you auction. A lot of stuff. It's older. Uh, a lot of things you auction is older stuff. And at the same time, you know, one of your first plans was an older plane yeah. as well. But I just want to thank you personally, Scott. Yes, I've, I've had a you. blast. I've learned so much from this episode. I always like talking to you. Um, but, yeah, thank you for coming on. I well, appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. I've listened to some of your other podcasts. And, uh, yeah, I mean, basically it's hanging out with people I enjoy. Hey, and we <laughs> appreciate that. If you enjoy us, make sure you follow us at all of our socials, Rule One Podcast. We're on the Gram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok. You name it, we're on it. Find us. Also, hit like and subscribe on YouTube and Spotify. It really helps us out, pushes us in the algorithms for people that don't know us yet. But, uh, Mr. Scott, thank you so much for coming on. Your stories are so cool today. Can't wait to have you back on one, one day down the line. Let yeah. us know, Brian. Take care. That'll be awesome. Yeah. We will see you all yes, next sir. week. Bye, guys.